welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who, if combined, would make one hell of a woodworker. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, it's Wood Talk number 256 for July 6th, 2015. On today's show, we're talking about letting necessity be the mother of invention, anticipatory ductwork for dust collection, and breadboard and joinery. All that and more coming up, but first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor, Brusso Hardware. Brusso provides high-quality American-made woodworking hardware for your next project. As a special discount for new members, I'm sorry, new customers, you don't have to join a membership. (laughs) Sorry about that. So do I get a hinge every single month? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They should do that. That's a great idea. Uh, You can use just one, just one hinge. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh, You can use coupon code WT two zero one five for ten percent off orders at Brusso.com. And we'd also like to thank a uh, very special donor, Adam Levitt, who uh, sent us a few bucks using one of the links over in the right-hand column of woodtalkshow.com, and you could do that too. We'd certainly appreciate the support. Uh, also, go to woodtalkshow.com slash giveaway, and you could sign up for, well, we don't have the new one up. Typical Wood Talk Guy stuff, you know? We do, we do this all the time, but it'll just, be up soon. <laughs> yeah, sign up for it and just expect that it's going to be awesome, because it'll be awesome. Uh, we hope so. It's going to be great. Yeah, we hope so. All right, so let's move into what's on the bench. Uh, I'll go first. I finished the basic version of the outdoor bench, and I mentioned that last time that I was going to start it. So the, the the core version that's very square and blocky and doesn't have a whole lot of, you know, fancy going on, which is perfectly fine. I mean, I think a lot of people would be happy with it where it is right now, um, but that's finished. And today I just started into cutting some curves in the slats and shaping the legs a little bit, just little tiny things to make it a little bit I don't know. So people just look at it and go, okay, that's not as cookie cutter as it could be. That's nice. So that's uh, probably another day or two. And then I'll have a a project up on the free site. How nice is that? Oh, that's really nice. Nice for a change, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, but that's, that's about it for me. It hasn't been all that exciting. Um, But uh, African mahogany, having, having some good luck with it. And I know sometimes the grain can be a little squirrely and you can have issues and it's uh, not as hard as other exotics but uh, in this case i had no problem planing it had no problem hitting it with a smoother i've got like 17 slats on the top of this thing so all of those edges i'm thinking man number one sanding those edges you're likely to just round them over so it's no longer a nice crisp corner and as long as it takes to sand that or any other operation you do to smooth the edges it's so much faster to just grab a jack plane or a smoother or something and just give it two or three passes and then it's done. And then you've maintained yes. like a nice crisp edge, you know, and it's, it just totally makes sense on edges. This is one of those whole like hybrid woodworking things that you cannot argue with the efficiency of using a hand plane in this instance. I, the truth I, I, shall set you free. I, will, I have 20 other instances where it would make no sense to use the hand plane. <laughs> but you have 17 slats, so you're only coming up three short. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, just a fun example. And hey, I even did the the, the joinery like that. I sweetened up all the, the tenons using my big old fat uh, rabbit plane, uh, shoulder plane, sorry. Um, so yeah, it's a good it's project. A tenons. Uh, a whole lot of mortise and tenons. It's one of those things where it's like if you didn't have either a pocket hole jig, uh, a domino, or some kind of a dowel rig, this is the project that would make you want one or make you just go out and buy it. <laughs> right. All of those mortise and tenon joints is really a pain in the butt. So. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. So that's coming to a close. Uh, Matt, what about you? Well, for me, since it was a holiday weekend, as we're coming out of that right now, we were out in the woods with our friends at their cabin. We're always like, you know what would be a great time? Let's go to your cabin. Nice. And they're like, well, we had other plans. We're like, no, no, no. Let's go to your cabin. We canceled those other plans for you. Sure, they appreciate that. 
They did. They, they well, we said we would bring ourselves, and they're like, "What else?" And that's what more do you need? Potato salad. <laughs> yeah, we'll bring toilet paper. Potato salad. What a bargain. <laughs> So the big thing I actually did was so we were out there, we're kind of out in the woods, and I started thinking about. Do you remember last week there was somebody sent in a video suggestion that was called uh, "Carving in the Woodlands"? Oh yeah. yeah. So we're out there. We're next to a river. It's very very <laughs> quiet. There's not a lot of stuff going on, and we happen to have uh, a number of axes and hatchets and all this other stuff. So I brought a uh, carving knife with me, and I took some time to sharpen up one of the throwing tomahawks that we use because we're not very good at throwing them. So I figured we might as well try and split some wood with it or something, and I grabbed some. Uh, wood for that would normally go into the fire and I started playing around with it and I had that moment where I felt like I was in that video just without necessarily the running water because there wasn't a lot of that in the background we did have coyotes which was really weird mm. uh, made me grip up on the tomahawk a little bit more <laughs> but nice. I ended up making what I am passing off as my first ever hand carved butter knife Nice. Uh, while I was trying to finesse the blade to get it just the right way, it broke off. And so now it looks like one of those hook knives kind of like on the very top there. And people are like, what was that for? Why, why are you doing this? And I'm like, well, it's supposed to be a butter knife. But I'm now thinking that we should have a theme around the campfire, which is prison break. And this is my shake. <laughs> so <laughs> It's also a can opener. Sounds like that might work. Yeah, exactly. So we'll see how that goes. So that was... That w- was was the fun that I had out there. It was It was really interesting, nice. although some people were kind of like, he's getting a little crazy with that axe. We might want to get away from him. Did you uh, go into the group and say, hey, everybody, let's uh, get some metal slapping wood out here? <laughs> uh, no, but I should. Should I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, you should have. So basically, yeah, what you're the- saying is you spent the weekend in the woods whittling. Yes, yes. But my favorite part was one other friend was like, that looks like a lot of fun. And I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> okay. So when I set down the tomahawk or the, 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 it really is a tomahawk when it comes down to it. I set it down. He picked it up and he managed to take a log and remove the bark. And he was so happy with it. He's like, this is it. Look at how beautiful this is. I'm like, <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> it's awesome. Look at it. You literally made something larger, smaller. You did a great job. Welcome to woodworking. Yeah. That's all <laughs> we ever do. You're now qualified to be a host on Wood Talk. <laughs> that's exactly yeah, I was going to invite him to see if he wanted to come on and talk about his experience today. Nice. Uh, but that was pretty much it. So, Shannon, now, apparently, are you having some chest problems or your cold still left over from the, the fever? It looks like you're, you made a blanket chest. Is that what's – you need to put your blankets in there to keep you warm or uh, no. hiding something? <clears throat> no. As you guys know, it's been, it's been a tough couple of weeks for me just kind of getting back into the shop. Um, you know, my shop experience was – it was very about me, very much about me and my shop dog, and that's that's. I don't want to be the buzzkill here, but it's just been. I get down there, and it's like I'm finding all kinds of reasons not to do stuff. So finally, this weekend, I was like, okay, this is like a band aid. You know, we're just gonna go down there, rip it off, and get working. And and I did, and I got back to work on my blanket chest, and it was good. It was very therapeutic to get in there, um, and just nice to just start working some wood again. Although I got to say, since Matt brought up the whole cold, I don't even know what it was. Viennese croup infection, man, it takes a lot out of you. Um, and I, I, I get comments from time to time from, um, older gentlemen, you know, in their late seventies and eighties who talk about, man, I envy you doing all that work by hand, but when you get older, you're going to want, you know, a table saw. And I'm like, okay, okay. I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. But you know, when you have, a really bad fever and a bad infection. It just takes everything out of you. And I'm down there sawing and I'm going, holy crap, this is hard. You've got to get your endurance <laughs> like, back up, right? What happened to me? <laughs> it's just awful. I made like six uh, six straight 
cuts and I was dying, absolutely <laughs> wiped out. I had to like sit down and stare at the wall for like 15 minutes just to figure out where it was again. It was just like, man, I do not like being sick. It was bad news, but I'm back to woodworking, which is nice. It was, we, we've talked enough in the past about how sometimes you just got to get in there and get going. And, and it definitely, things just started flowing once I, uh, once I got working. So. So it happy. sounds like you, you had an experience very much like an Olympic sprinter who gets sick and then has to come back in and, and start retraining. Yes, but at a much, 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 much lower level. Yes, they're, yeah, they're much lower than you at the moment. You sure those things aren't equal? Come on, they sound equal to me. <laughs> Saw on a yeah. board, uh, you know, running the 50-meter dash. I mean, it's very In similar. Three seconds, yeah. <laughs> nice. All right, well, let's uh, jump into what's new. Got a couple of things to share with you uh, that folks sent to us or things we found. Mike sent in a link to a Core 77 blog post on Japanese master craftsmen dry fitting huge, insanely complicated wood joints. I believe we've either linked to one or two of these, or I know we've definitely talked about them in the past. This is almost um, a nice collection, in fact. So some of the ones we've talked about are in there, but there's others there. So we've got a link to this where we'll um, be able to share it, but just insanely complicated, amazing joinery that's, it's half part, like, I don't know, half of it's inspirational. The other half makes me want to hang up my head and do something else. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple in there that I'm looking at it going, okay, I know I just watched this go together, but how did he do that? <laughs> yeah. So that's the, some of the best woodworking is like that. It uh, makes you, it's two sides of your brain get uh, lit up when you see that. One that wants to <laughs> give up and the other that wants to be a great woodworker. Or the exact opposite. Your whole brain just shuts down and goes, nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're good. Thank nice. you. All right. Well, this next link came in from AJ Hopkins, and I believe this was in reference to, as I had mentioned something about the CNC that I'm going to be playing with from Inventables. Mm -hmm. And this link is to a geometric laser cut wood relief sculptures by Gabriel Shama, Skama, Shama, something like that. Mm -hmm. By Gabriel. Uh, so again, this is laser cut wood relief, but uh, I'm sure potentially once years down the road and I've had many years of mastering the inventables and have broken many, many bits, I might be able to do some of these really cool geometric shapes. And they are really, really cool, like multi-layer, multi-level. You're like, wow, that is super cool. Nice. Cool. It's very artsy. Well, we've had quite a few people who've written in over the years and asked about um, – taking things professional, becoming a professional woodworker, advice on doing that. And a couple of weeks ago, um, Peter Galbert started a series on his blog called Becoming a Professional Woodworker. Last I checked, he was up to three parts. Um, it's unclear whether you know he's done or if he's going to do more. I think it's kind of open-ended. But it is really good. It's It's kind of a little bit of his origin story on how he got started, but how he came to find his niche in in being a professional woodworker, in his case, being a Windsor chair maker. And it it kind of answers every question we've ever gotten on becoming a professional woodworker. I mean, this is not one of those, now go down to City Hall and do this, and then, you know, now follow this marketing thing. It's It's very kind of introspective. It's these are the questions you should be asking yourself to help you figure out what how it's going to work best for you. So I've really enjoyed it. Um, I'm hoping that he does a couple more. I mean, I don't think that he, you can turn this into a 30-part series by any means. But um, there's definitely a few other – you just kind of feel like he's got more to say on the subject. So cool. definitely check it out. Uh, I've included the link to the first one. Um, they're all in order on his blog. So just click next and you'll Does find he have it. one in there that's like, if your name is Matt Vanderlis, stop doing it now? 
I actually, I think that's midway through the second piece. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. You know, I want to read that. I'm very interested in, in his perspective because I think there, it's interesting these days where there are a lot of people who are professional and they're in woodworking, but they're not really professional woodworkers. And I absolutely fall into that category, which is why when someone says, I want to start a woodworking business, what do I do? I say, ask someone else who's like, who's done <laughs> right. that successfully. Um, so many people that we know and admire, and even Peter, arguably at this point, you know, because we're talking about him and he's publishing content or being sort of put into the magazines and things like that, part of his income will start to come from this stuff. So the more you do that, it seems like the harder it may be to to think in terms of just being purely a professional woodworker. That is such a difficult way to go. And, and that's why so many people do get into publication of content and education because it's a little bit more dependable income than building for other people. So um, I'm interested to see how many people who say they want to be a professional woodworker truly mean that versus like, I want to be in, I want to build stuff professionally, but I don't necessarily want to, you know, be the guy who's bidding with, uh, you know, two or three other businesses in our town and trying to get the same jobs and what it really takes to be just a professional woodworker. Well, it's interesting because I knew vaguely that Peter had a, had a woodworking history prior to being the the chair making guy. Sure. Um, I'm almost hesitant to call him a Windsor chair guy because so much of his stuff, even though it's based on the Windsor platform, it's, he's got a very contemporary style to it. Mm -hmm. Um, but he spent time working in a cabinet shop, you know, wearing a dust mask and ear protection and basically dressed up like Darth Vader all day long, running a router table. Um, and just, you know, you hear about guys who do that and they are so turned off by it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, actually, I think Jim Tolpin did something similar, but I think he ran his own cabinet shop. Peter actually worked in someone else's cabinet shop. And it just sounds like a mind-numbing, awful thing, you know. But right. I, I, I think it may might be one of those, like, cut-your-teeth type thing. Um, so uh, you know, he developed a strong background, and then he learned about everything that he didn't want to do. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a very good series. I highly recommend reading it. I, th- I think because it's a hobby, you know, it's something that we a lot of people do because they enjoy it. It's romanticized about what it would be like to do this full time. Um, well, I'll tell you, it's the same thing. I always think about before woodworking, I was huge into mountain biking. I know the form of the when you see me in person, you're always like, I knew it. That's I a, could that's tell a biker from body. The, I could tell from those legs. Exactly. But when I, when I was really <laughs> huge into biking, the one thing I, I was always thinking about all these cool things that you could do, not just as a professional racer, but like I wanted to like go into becoming like a, a messenger and like riding all over the place on my bike and and pulling some really cool Kevin Bacon moves or something and doing all these <laughs> other things. You, you mean know, Footloose or Quicksilver? In Quicksilver. Well, I, mean, I, I could do I could do the other one too, but I don't want to show people both. up when we're out on the dance floor. So, <laughs> you know, but yeah, I always thought in the, I, I romanticized that. I remember just thinking, I'm like, well, I could do this, I could do this. And just like that whole entire, just that mindset that like, I am so in love with this, this hobby, this whole lifestyle that this needs to be my whole entire lifestyle. And then eventually I discovered woodworking and I did the same thing. I didn't want to pull any Kevin Bacon moves. I don't know if he has any woodworking movies, but I wanted to incorporate that into every aspect of my life. So yeah, yeah, there really is something about as an, as a hobbyist woodworker, you just fall so in love with the idea of this being the be all end all. Yep. You know, it's, it's funny, Matt, because I went through something similar when I was in college with, um, road racing, um, on a bike and it, 
the severe beating that I got every time I entered a race was enough to tell me to not pursue that any further. <laughs> I had the same effect out on the trails. Yes. Somehow that, that 384th place was enough to convince me that maybe I don't need to do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'm not great at this. <laughs> As I was celebrating, you know, my, my uh, one hour uh, time out on a seven mile trail and the guy that's running the professional was like, oh, I did like eight laps in that time period. I'm like, forget it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. So we, well, let's move on. We have two more links here. This one came in from Patrick, and he says, "What if the Flash were a woodcarver? It is possible to actually watch this. Is it possible to actually watch this without stopping a few times? Because it feels like you get a little motion sickness." So this is a time lapse wood carving of eyes and nose of a face from, uh, I believe it's uh, she is what the, I believe the name of the video is, and this is jchismar.com. It's a, a a wood carver. It's really kind of neat. Starts out with a block of wood and you see it kind of come together as an art piece. It's about 15, 16 minutes long, but it's all sped up. So really kind of neat. Uh, the other one came from Mike, who said he found this article about art students' use of pine offcuts, and they made a whole end grain desk accessories, which has like a pencil holder and paper holder and all this other stuff. And just that end grain wood grain itself that that look of all these pieces brought together is just really really sharp it's a really neat design look but there's that part of me that's like yep that probably takes a lot of patience (laughs) that it does hey you know that mask video you were talking about uh watch that and i made it through like it's all moving very very fast and then at the very end when you actually want to see this thing it just is like boom done gone and the video is done it's like give me two seconds to look at the damn thing man you made me go through all this (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, you could turn off the time lapse at the end, please. Yeah, it was a little bit frustrating to go through all that work and not actually be able to enjoy it uh, without hitting the pause button. But yeah, good stuff, though. Um, All right. I've got one more link to to put in here. Added this late. Uh, Got an email from David Marks. And apparently Woodwork Season 6 is available for purchase now. So if you're a fan of the Woodworks TV show from back in the day, Season 6 is available on DVD. It's $69.99. And then all of the episodes are available as digital downloads. Um, five bucks a piece. I don't know if they have like a package deal where you can get them, but um, this is one of this is when like David was hitting his stride. Uh, there's some really sort of unique designs in there. He makes his own sort of Krenov style hand plane. Um, he does a whole video on veneering tips and techniques. He makes this is the one with the drum table in it. Uh, he actually made a couple of like it looks like a jig. What is that? That's his uh, aluminum bodied uh, miter jig for the table saw. Um, that he used throughout the show. So I think they were giving him a little bit more flexibility to do some fun stuff later uh, in these later seasons. So definitely got to pick it up. If not, you know, go look at the page. We'll put the link there. Just look at some of the projects. You got to at least buy an episode or two and check it out. So good stuff. There's there's plenty of beach time left in the summer. So that might be a good opportunity to download those. And then while your kids are off, hopefully not being sucked away by a riptide, you can enjoy the show. <laughs> Let's hope. Um, all right, poll of the dark, week. dark, Matt. Yeah, very, where's your brain today, man? What's going uh, on? Yeah, I don't know. It's dark places. <laughs> all right, so poll of the week from our good buddy, Tom Iovino, who happens to be in the area. And frankly, I thought I felt a tremor earlier, and turns out Tom just got off the plane. We, was it like you thought you heard a jet flying over and it was just Tom getting off the plane? <laughs> the, the echo of Tom's voice going over my house. Is that an F-16? No, that's Tom Ivino. So he's actually in town. We're probably going to uh, hook up and get some dinner sometime this week. I don't know when, but anyway. Tom Iovino, Tom work, Tom's Workbench.com is where uh, you could find him, and he does our polls and sets up these 
fun little questions where you can answer and participate and find out a little bit more about the people who you're associating with online, uh, which is always interesting. So we don't have a new poll this week, but last week's results are in. And the question was, do you have trouble getting started in the shop? This kind of reminded me of um, uh, Shannon. You were talking about having a little difficulty getting started because you were sick. So uh, this is just a general question. Do you have trouble getting in the shop? And if so, uh, what are the reasons? And lots of great comments. I mean, the, the poll is interesting, but go read the comments because you hear people sort of commiserating about kids and like other responsibilities and <laughs> the reason why they can't get in. But over a thousand votes on this one and kind of interesting uh, the way it broke down. So 46% said that I've got uh, trouble on occasion. Uh, 33% said, I'm always having a tough time getting started. 18% said that uh, usually or rarely have trouble getting started. And 3% said, I'm always ready to go. So 46 plus 33, what is that? 79? Yep. 79% of the people that responded have difficulty getting started, whether it's you know a little bit of trouble to severe difficulty. Is that common amongst hobbies? Would you say just as uh, hobbyists have difficulty getting started in a, in a thing they're supposed to love? You know, I'm going to say, put it out there right now. I am supposed to, I took this week off as we're recording this. So uh, I plan on, I've got a big project that I need to do actually for a client and I am having trouble getting myself started. I keep coming up with excuses like I have to record a show. I have to yeah. do this. I have to do that. Uh, I really am procrastinating horribly. And all it is is just a matter of just get out there and start doing it. So I definitely fall within that 79%. And I think that's very true for a vast majority of my projects. There is just like that hesitation to get get moving. But once I get going, then it's like, oh, this is no problem. I, I think it's common across hobbies. And I think it's all because of the internet. Um, I know a lot of people, we, we mentioned mountain biking earlier. I know a lot of people who are very much into cycling, whether mountain or road, and they spend a lot of time reading about it, like during the work week, reading about this technique or this technique or this training um, technique. And it's like, then when they have that free moment to get out, there's like all this stuff in their head. I've got to do this. Well, then I've got to get this and I've got to get this new tool or this new wheel or pick your favorite hobby. Um, and it does kind of that paralysis analysis thing kicks in a little bit. And instead of suddenly you having two hours to do woodworking, now you've done all that stuff to prepare and now you're down to like an hour and 15 minutes to do any woodworking. And now yeah. you're thinking, well, can I really get anything done? So let me just go and sweep the shop a little bit. And then it just doesn't happen. And I've seen the same thing happen with golfers. I've seen the same thing happen with cyclists and fishermen. So the Internet has ruined us all. It it's given us it's given us too much to think about, frankly, and too much to compare against. Going back to our um, our weekend show last weekend about like being too hard on yourself. Yeah, um, I think at the same time, it's not being hard on yourself, but there's so many things to try, or there's so many kind of do this, then this, then this. Someone else telling you how to do this that you let it get in the way. Well, you know, and I also think there's a, we've probably talked about this before, a cumulative effect when you're looking at your Facebook timeline or, you know, Instagram or something like that. And you're looking at what everybody else is doing. And each person may post just this little progress pic, but your brain might see it as the, uh, you know, the grand total is everyone is getting stuff done but you. But me, right. You know, and I think you even mentioned that before with me last week. You said something about my productivity and I don't yeah. feel like I'm being very productive at all. 
you know, but meanwhile, in other people's eyes, based on what they see me post, maybe, you know, it's not just me posting, but it's the two or three people who posted after me and their brain sees it as, man, like everybody's getting so much done and not, what am I supposed to do? Like, I, I can't keep up with this. And there is that feeling like you have to keep up, which can be daunting and can stop you from getting back in because you're, you know, thinking about what other people are doing. Oh, yeah. I do. In fact, it's funny you mentioned Facebook because I'm on there right now. And in case anybody's wondering, three hours ago, Tom Iovino was at Jack in the Box having breakfast. He came all the way to Phoenix to go to Jack in the Box? Apparently so. <laughs> Jeez, Tom. What are you doing? I mean, it's not like there's a lot of great places to eat out here, but come on, you could do better than Jack in the Box. <laughs> but that just sucked all my time as I was listening to ways that other people get their time sucked away from them. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, you, know, you could still answer this poll if you're interested or see what the results are. Probably well over a thousand votes at this point. Uh, I'm not sure we're going to have a poll this week since Tom is out of town, but uh, we'll resume normal schedule next week. All right, we've got some kickback here. This is where you give us some feedback on things that happened in previous shows, comments and suggestions and all that good stuff. So the first one here is from David Coley. This came from the Wood Talk website at woodtalkshow.com. He says, I live in an area where a good lumber supplier is extremely limited. I do have a woodcraft, but those guys are expensive and they, they, they know it and don't care. Uh, I'd love for big box stores to carry domestic exotic lumber. Uh, also, I agree with Mark. If you order 10 board feet, you should get at least 10 board feet. Typically, the customer is paying for shipping anyway. And yeah, shipping is crazy expensive. But if you need 10 board feet, you need 10 board feet, not less. Typically, I will add 10% to my material list just for this reason. Great show, guys. Keep it up. Sweet. Well, this one came in from Jeff. And Jeff says, I don't order lumber online, but I will call ahead and have my supplier pull material ahead of time on some projects. I know that if I ask for 40 board feet, they will pull somewhere between 39 and 45 board feet. So when I go pick up my order, I'm charged accordingly. Hmm. The online supplier should place a hold on your card when you initially order and state that your order will be filled somewhere between 95 and 110% of what was ordered. Then they can just adjust your bill accordingly. I like so, that idea. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's, that, that's not going to work. Come on, Shannon. <laughs> oh, Shannon, make I, this happen. I could just tell you, I could just tell you there's enough uncertainty in buying lumber to begin with, if I had to actually tell a customer, okay, well, just go ahead and, and we'll put a hold on the card and then the amount might change, they'd be like, hell you are. No way. There's enough people that are um, skittish, I guess, for for the same reason that um, – oh, I forgot who wrote in originally who said he was shorted like 0.6 board feet. Yeah. That same reason. There's just enough people that don't want – they want to know how much it's going to be and they like – withhold card information until the last possible moment. So, you know, it's, it's tough. If you're going to run an online, like an e-commerce store where you actually add to cart and check out, all that stuff has to be calculated um, in order for it to, to render properly. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, you're, you're taking orders over the phone and then calling back and quoting and getting final amounts, and, and that's the way it's got to go. Stop um, making excuses, Shannon. Yeah, Shannon, <laughs> is there an online lumber supplier association which with uh, standards of best practice? Because if there's not, <laughs> no. we should form one right now, and therefore you, all those in, uh, in, in attendance right now who think that Shannon should be in charge of this, say aye. Aye. <laughs> aye. There you go, Shannon. You're outvoted. Majority wins. <laughs> Right, we'll put in the lumber industry. We'll we'll put together some standards and we'll base them off of 1955, and then, uh, we won't touch them again for a hundred years. Can I do? Can I set the dimensional listing uh, standards, please? No, no, you may not. Come on. Well, All if you right, have only, it, in only if you do it properly. <laughs> okay. Will you need punch cards for that 1955 technology? Yes, that'd be awesome. <laughs> cool. Right. Sweet. There's Here's one for you there, Shannon. Yeah, yeah, I see that. So uh, <laughs> he has so many jobs from, now. <laughs> this is from John, and I love I love how John starts this out. John says, 
two things, just very authoritative. The Schwarz had a blog post where he said he makes something and focuses on everything that's wrong with it. Then the family starts living with the piece and he comes to accept it as is. This helped me accept the stuff I build as it is. So that's a good point. This is in reference to our weekend show where I believe it was Nathan was giving himself a hard time saying mm-hmm. that everything he makes was terrible. Uh, that's a very good point. I do remember that blog post. I'll see if I can't dig it up and put a link there. Uh, second thing that John says is I quit asking myself if I'm proud of something. Now I ask if I'm happy with it. That doesn't leave me competing with the entire world. Very good advice, John. Thank you. I can't like. differentiate in my brain between proud and happy. Uh, How well, can I be happy I, with something I'm not proud of? Well, sometimes I'm proud of my happiness, and then there's times that I'm happy I'm <laughs> ha- proud. Happy to be proud? <laughs> I'm happy to be proud. <laughs> I see those as one and the same. Like I, I understand they're two different emotions, but well, I'm, I'm they go hand happy. in hand. I'm very happy watching my puppy try to get out from under a blanket, but I'm not proud of the fact that it's taking him a very long time to find his way out. (laughs) Good point. Is that where content comes in? Can we use content instead? I'm content with. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm happy that my son can speak. I'm not proud of the things he says. There you go. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Uh, That's something the vandalists have heard for years. (laughs) But secretly, you know you're very proud of what he just said. You're just not allowed to admit it. There's. uh, We've already gotten in trouble because I taught him, guess what, chicken butt. And he says it all the time. And then he's been told by his teacher that it's a potty word. And they're trying to figure out where this started. And I'm sitting there like, I'm just like, oh, man, this is totally my fault. And his teacher's like, well, I think he learned it from one of the other kids. It's not like I invented that, you know, so that he could have learned it elsewhere. Yeah, but it's those other kids. But I, yeah. that little Johnny, those little jerks. <laughs> but yeah, so now I'm in trouble because I taught him how to say chicken butt. So we've got to teach him like, OK, it's a potty word. But like, I don't think that's that big of a deal. So I really don't care if he says it at home. So it's like. Uh, think parenting is going to be fun. I can tell you that much. Then you have the Samantha effect on our kids where everything starts with F. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's definitely a potty word kids. Yeah. There's no explanation that he doesn't have a, they didn't have one bit of hesitation to go, mom, (laughs) <laughs> so, right, well, hey, picking up on that whole happy, proud thing, we have one more that just came in literally as we just started recording. So I went and grabbed this. It came from Greg, and this is also over at the Wood Talk website. He says, I certainly experienced this issue. I've been woodworking for about two years as well, and I'm often horrified by the number of errors I make in building projects. Toward the end of a build, as the flaws have accumulated, it's sometimes tempting to throw the thing in a scrap pile. But then friends and families always say that the piece looks great. One piece of wisdom that seems relevant is something I learned from Jim Heavey, and that's to shut up. That is, when someone sees something you've built and says, <laughs> wow, that's beautiful, resist the urge, which seems to be a second nature for woodworkers to say, well, it's okay, I guess, and then point out each and every mistake you made in creating it. Instead, just say thanks and shut up. And I find this <laughs> helps me to see my work from the perspective of the average non-woodworker who is truly amazed at what we can do as hobbyists despite our shortcomings. I agree with the advice offered in the episode, the fact that we are aware of our mistakes and become more able to notice and possibly fix, fix them as part of our becoming better woodworkers, but we don't need to dwell on them. If I focused on only the flaws in my work, everything I built would be in a scrap pile or a fireplace, and I'd be knitting rather than woodworking. <gasps> Greg, shut up! What? Yeah, take Jim Heavey's advice, man. Bite your tongue. Jim Heavey's a good guy. He is. Yes, yeah. And I could totally see him saying that. In fact, I think he said that to me once the one time I met him. It had nothing to do with woodworking, though. Had nothing yeah. to do with woodworking. Shut up, man. <laughs> 
<laughs> nice. All right, let's move into our email. Got one here from Chad. Uh, thought this was kind of interesting, and I'd like to hear your perspectives too, guys. He says, my workbench is set up as the outfeed for my table saw. The entire shop is a one-car garage space. My bench has a simple 2x4 frame and a 3 quarter inch MDF top. I don't need anything more fancy, and it works fine for me. However, when my bench is full of clamps, tools, and junk, I have to move all the stuff out of the way to cut a sheet of plywood, for example. I've noticed that real, quote-unquote, woodworking benches often have a recessed space for tools. The top of my bench overhangs the base by about five inches on all sides. I'm thinking about cutting a notch in the back, about a third of the top, maybe 12 inches deep, 30 inches wide. Then mount a box on the underside with a flush mounted hinge on the top of the box, allowing it to open and close like a piano bench. I could then use the cavity to store commonly used tools and perhaps make it easier to shove all this stuff in the cavity when I need to use the bench as an outfeed. All of the work I do on my bench is in the front anyway, so the slight imperfection in the top pardon me, of the bench shouldn't matter much. Uh, can you talk me out of this? Worst case, if it doesn't work, I get a new piece of MDF, right? So I think the last sentence really says it for me. It's like, it is just a piece of MDF. Um, you know, it's a $30, you know, $40 at the most fix if you need to do something different. So I'm in this case, he's got an unconventional workbench and I don't think he should let conventional wisdom in terms of what you're supposed to do, quote unquote, to stop him from trying something different. So if he wants to install a box on the underside with the lid and can be perfectly happy with that. I say, go for it. Um, you're only out a sheet of, pl- um, what do you call it? A sheet of MDF. Uh, it, this sounds like a very utilitarian workbench anyway, you know? Mm-hmm. So just because people don't, <laughs> because I'm not about to cut a slot in my four inch thick bench top, uh, doesn't mean you can't do it on yours. Um, now if I were to try to build storage into my bench, I probably, because I do have a more traditional bench, I probably would go with some kind of, uh, under bench storage. And in the long run, I think he'd be happier with that because you can get a little more organized. You can store more stuff. And while this box thing is somewhat intriguing, part of the problem I have with it is it's never a great idea to just have a black hole of storage. (laughs) A junk drawer. (laughs) Yeah, that's to me, that's what that would become is a junk drawer. So not only do you have trouble finding the tools, getting them back out, you may damage them by dropping everything in there in your haste to kind of clean up the work surface. So, you know, it has its pluses and minuses, but I would like to see him explore it just to try it and answer the question for himself whether this is even going to work. Of course, it has to be supported. A three-quarter inch MDF top is going to sag very easily. So um, if you're putting this little box on the underside and having it hinged and there's weight in there because you're putting tools in there, uh, you may have something on your hands that's going to wind up sagging on you. So make sure it's fully supported. Uh, But do beware of the black hole of storage. Um, that, That would be my only reservation about it. Oh, man, the last time I even looked in what is my version of the black hole of storage, I opened it up and went, I'm going to now I'm going to close that. (laughs) I'm not touching it. Well, and even with the tills, you know, that some folks have in their benches and more traditional style benches, that is one of the arguments against them is that it just kind of become a place to collect junk. Um, So some people don't like the biggest thing, especially on workbenches where um, like a hand tool guy is doing a lot of planing or even if you're not doing planing, you're generating chips, Mm -hmm. crap, you know. Um, And that all gets swept into that till at the same time. So I like that he's thinking about putting a lid on it so that that doesn't happen. Sure. Um, And the other thing you have to worry about when you're making a lid is that the lid's not so big that then you've got to clear a bunch of stuff off the lid in order to open the lid. (laughs) <laughs> yes that yes. will happen yes. you know <laughs> suddenly you're like oh well i can't get into the box because now i got to clear all the stuff out of the way so then the box is completely useless so yeah. 
Um, so then you think, well, I'll leave it open. No, that's a bad idea. Um, and we've got a, a couple of workbenches over at the Stepping Stone Museum that are the traditional German style bench with the till, the tool well on the back. And it's useful. Like I like to move like the, the plane I'm using, stick it over in the till or whatever, but it fills up with so much crap. So it becomes part of your daily, like your working routine to stop every you know hour and clear out the till. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it can get really dangerous. If you've got sharp tools in there buried under chips and you're digging out chips and suddenly you dig out a chip and you only have four fingers on that hand and you're wondering what happened. Hey, that because hurts. there's something <laughs> sharp hiding in that crap in there. Right. So, yeah, it's something to be very wary of. Cool. All right, Chad, let us know if you do it and what the results are. Report back. Absolutely. Yeah, what he said. Yeah, that guy. Okay, so this one came in from John, and John says, I have a single-stage Harbor Freight dust collector, and I work in a dedicated one-car garage. I've decided to run some permanent duct work as I'm tired of dragging the expandable hose from tool to tool. Also, the modest performance of the dust collector is compromised to the point that I frequently don't even bother. Now, the dust collector has a 5-inch intake, and one day I will definitely upgrade to a more powerful model, and I don't want to have to redo the duct work. Also, I don't want. I, I also. I also want to do. I don't want to. I'm reading into this too far. <laughs> I also want to do everything possible to maximize its performance with respect to the ductwork. So my question is: Should I run five inch ductwork or six? Will going bigger than the intake affect her performance? If it will not, I'm planning on running six, as I know many of the larger model collectors have a six inch intake. So the first thing is I, I know that pain of the expandable hose from tool to tool, and for certain, regardless of, I, I, we'll get to the 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 diameter of the ductwork itself, but for certain, uh, with with rigid ductwork, it really is does make a, a performance difference over the flexible stuff because. I've noticed with my my dust collector, it's not super huge. It's a one and a half horsepower, if I remember correctly. I never pay attention to those. It just works. Uh, But when I turn it on, I will watch that uh, hose start to collapse on itself, which is reducing suction, and you have all these other issues. So going with something a little bit more solid will force certain – the rigid duct work will help with that. Now, regarding the six-inch down to the five – a lot of the resources that I've been looking, a lot of the things I've been looking at when I have been designing the one that eventually I will stop sitting on my butt and finally do, uh, even though I only have a five-inch inlet on my dust collector, I'm planning on running six for the largest trunks as possible. And I'm going to keep it at six as close to where I'm going to have it branch off to either the machines uh, that are, are I'm going to be collecting the dust from or to the dust collector itself. And I'm anticipating from what I'm reading that that will still give me really, really decent performance. Uh, so I know both of you, well, Mark, for certain, you did the, the duct work. Now, Shannon, you played around with some rigid duct work before, didn't you? Or am I thinking of somebody else? Nope, never used it. Oh, you should use it sometime, and I want to get your experience. <laughs> well, you know, honestly, I've, I've thought about it just because um, – my shop is now on a point where it's kind of fixed. Um, I never wanted to deal with ductwork before because uh, there was machines coming and going and everything was mobile to begin with. So it didn't make sense to have a bunch of rigid ductwork. But now that I've got a dust collector that is dedicated towards my honk and planer, um, I actually have thought about running a single line of, of rigid ductwork and then having my little hose because I use it as a, essentially a shop vac. We're cleaning up the floor and everything otherwise. So I could have my, my flexible hose branch off of that and have a full six-inch trunk running direct to my planer. It would certainly improve the efficiency. But right. 
you know, you're talking super simple because you're talking about a, a four foot run from the dust collector to <laughs> one machine. That would be so, some setup. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you won't believe. I don't know why people are not getting results like I get. That's insane. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, though, that I could find a way to overcomplicate it and somehow stretch that project out over three weeks. You know? right. Yeah. Now, I'm not, I might be wrong here, but I've always been under the impression that there's really no reason to go any bigger than the size of the intake. So okay. I would be con- a little bit concerned about going from five to six and constricting that airflow on the way in. I would be inclined just to run five and keep that as my maximum diameter following then the logic that you said about staying. But he as, does as, say he's looking to upgrade eventually. So right, he did say that. Well, then yeah, that's the thing. If he's looking to upgrade, then of course it makes sense to just reduce right, re- reduce at it. the intake and then you know, just swap out the collector, redu- you know, remove the reducer and you're good to go. But I, I, I right. was just thinking in general, long-term, um, yeah. I don't, but I don't know for sure. I don't know if that's true, but I've heard that. Yeah. Cause the one thing I keep thinking of is it's just like, if you were ever to look at a storm drain and then if you had it narrowed down, you've got that grate right there. And I can imagine like big wood chips or, or shavings coming through. If you're going from six down to five, there's going to be that bottlenecking. So that's maybe a potential possibly. Um, yeah. But for certain, uh, yeah, go as large as you can. But yeah, there is something about that. Maybe, maybe five inch. I mean, five six. Is it really that big? I'd be curious to know what. How much of a difference does that actually make? But I think the you guys brought it up. I think the fact that he's thinking about upgrading kind of makes it a no brainer. He doesn't seem to like think that this one is very powerful to begin with. So if he's going to be upgrading and having six at the inlet anyway, it invest in the right size now and not worry about it later. Right. Yeah. Cool. Sounds good. Shannon. Okay. This is a question from Bob. Bob. He says, and I, I grabbed this specifically because I, I feel like I've gotten a lot of breadboard questions, both through my own site, through the Hand Tool School, through the Renaissance Woodworker. So there's a lot of people doing breadboards right now. So Bob is hoping that we can give him some advice on attaching breadboard ends on a cabinet top. I made a 3 8 inch wide by half inch deep groove into the end, stopping an inch from each end. I then made a matching tongue on the top. I understand that for the sake of expansion of the top, I should not glue the entire end in place. I thought I would glue about three inches of the center, but that leaves the outside edges unsecured. I then thought I would drill a dowel hole from the underside through the tongue, but not all the way through the top. My problem is is that this would hold the top in place just as glue would. Can I? Uh, can the hole in the tongue be slotted in such a way that the dowel holds the end tight but allows for a lateral movement? Should I also cut relief slots into the tongue? Okay, there's a couple of things going on here, Bob. Um, first of all, I think pegs are uh, a, a major part of, of getting breadboards to work. Essentially, the breadboard is there to hold the top flat to prevent it from cupping. Now, one thing I'm a little concerned about, I don't know how wide his breadboard is, but if he's got a half-inch deep groove, that's all he's done. A, a traditional breadboard is going to have uh, a groove, but then also tenons projecting out of that tongue. So there are tenons usually in about three, maybe four places along the breadboard that penetrate further into the breadboard, and then the little tongue um, that in his case is a half inch deep is what's really holding that top flat. The tenons are projecting further in order to hold the breadboard onto the, the top. So if you look at it, if you've got a three inch wide breadboard and only a half inch of it is supported on the tongue, there's a chance that that breadboard could break off because there's just not very much um, 
penetration into it to hold it in place. So he's already, I think, working at a bit of a deficit because he doesn't have those integral tenons. Now, if he's only got like a one inch wide breadboard here, he could be just fine. Um, so again, not knowing that, but because there are integral tenons in the breadboard, um, that is what allows you to allow for expansion and contraction. So the center tenon is a perfect snug fit and say the two outer flanking tenons, they sit in mortises that are a little bit wider. So that top can expand and contract inside of that. The pegs is what really holds it to the top. Technically, a breadboard doesn't need glue because you're using those pegs that hold it in place. What I do is actually draw bore those pegs. So they're holding it and and sucking it up tight to the end, but on only in that center tenon, only that center dowel, is it a, a perfect tight draw bore. On the outer ends, it's still draw board in the fact that it's offset, that it will it will pull it towards the, the cabinet top shoulder, but the holes are actually wider um, laterally to allow that expansion contraction. So yes, I think you should use pegs. If you don't want those pegs to show, um, you know, just use a depth stop. Be very, very certain um, that uh, you are not drilling through the other side. Look at your drill bit. Make sure it doesn't have a really, really long... Um, lead point <laughs> so that when you get to the bottom of your hole and the lead point sticking through, that's just trust me on that one. Not that I've ever done that, <laughs> um, but it's just something to think about. Um, I would be, see if he's already cut this, I'm a little concerned that he doesn't have any tenons here. He's just got essentially a tongue and groove. Yeah. Half inch. I'm thinking how, how are you going to pin those half inch little stubby, right. uh, uh, little, uh, groove and ten? What do you call it? Lost for words here. It's not actually a breadboard joint. It's a tongue and groove joint that he's got right now. Yeah. He finally says, should I cut relief slots in the tongue? So he, he's getting it. He's looking at it going, something's off here. Um, because what he's got is, and, and it's not a through groove, if I remember correctly. Yeah, he stopped an inch from each end. So mm-hmm. we're talking about a, a captive groove and essentially a tenon now. So it's one giant mortise. Um, you could... I suppose cut the tenon to be narrower than the actual mortise so that it has room to expand and contract, but you're still, uh, I mean, then you're dealing with the issue of, of how do I hold this on? And I think that's where his issue is right now is he's looking at one giant tenon and trying to figure out <laughs> how do I do this? Yeah, how do you let it um, and, move? And he's like, well, I'll put glue in the middle, but then it's, it's too loose. So I, I do think you could use a peg, or, or th- I would use three pegs, frankly, um, and make the center one uh, a perfect tight fit. And you don't have to draw bore it. I just like to draw bore because it really sucks it up tight against the shoulder. Um, and then the two flanking outer pegs, you just widen that hole just a little bit so that it's got room to expand and contract. And I wouldn't use glue at all. Or if you do, just use it right in the center. You know, because he doesn't have the tenons, there's also it might take a little bit of rethinking his design to be okay with this, but it comes from the, the kind of green and green breadboard ends that, that I've done in the past. And I learned this from um, Daryl Peart and William Ng and it does involve this type of a groove. It's a very uh, simple tongue and groove joint. 
And instead of pegging from, you know, from the top of the table or from the bottom, rather, uh, what you're doing is screwing in from the outside of the breadboard. Right. So then you would secure tight with screws in the center and slotted screws on the outside. So since all he has is this little tongue and groove, rather than try to get a peg in there, which frankly, I don't know how well that's going to hold up that with a little half inch tongue that may split. Yeah, you're uh, going to blow out the ingrain on the tongue itself. Yeah, exactly. So he may be better off. Like, if you want to hide it, he can certainly just do the drilling, counterbore, and cap them off with some face grain plugs so that you can't even tell that those screws are there. And that would be pretty darn secure. I've got a lot of breadboards um, on pieces in the house that were done that way. And even though it's a small groove, um, it actually holds it quite well because you've got long screws going through the breadboard and into the, the primary part of the top. Right. I think you, you still have to look at the actual width of your breadboard and determine just how much torque, you know, because invariably, I mean, this is a cabinet, I think he said. So I don't know if we're talking about a wall cabinet or whatever. But, you know, is is anybody ever going to lean on that breadboard? If you're thinking about a tabletop, you know, what do people do when they get up from the end of the table? They're, <laughs> they're pushing down on Man, that right thing. on it. Yep. And it's putting a lot of torque and it want to twist off the end. If it's a cabinet, uh, if it's anything that's going to be moved, invariably people are going to pick it up by the top and it's just going to tweak those things right off. So, you, you know, screws are going to help a lot. But, you know, if you have the ability to stack the odds in your favor by projecting something further into that breadboard, that's uh, only going to help you in the long run. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, if you want to support the show, keep this little fun train of moving, you can do that. Go to woodtalkshow.com and look at the right-hand column. You'll see a couple of donation links for uh, one-time donations or small recurring donations. You can also buy a Wood Talk t-shirt at twwstore.com and make sure you sign up for the Wood Talk giveaway as soon as it's posted, the woodtalkshow.com slash giveaway. And uh, you know what? You can also look us up in the iTunes store, click on ratings and reviews, and leave us a nice little rating there if you don't mind. And Matt, how about you give them the contact info and we'll get out of here. All right. Hey, folks, do you have a comment, question, topic, suggestion, or do you also know where Tom Iovino is right at this moment? Maybe you could let all of us know so we can <laughs> avoid the area like the plague. Uh, there's several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Wood Talk Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at kickback at woodtalkshow.com or leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, hey, you're going to find those over at woodtalkshow.com. Awesome. I almost had a, poor, a poorly timed yawn. <laughs> <laughs> I heard it, and that's what I was trying to like rush through to see if I could catch you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next time. See ya. What's up, chicken butt? <laughs>